2: When the world has safe and effective COVID-19 vaccines, how can we make sure they reach the people that need them most? Today,
0: There's this video I've watched a lot this week. It's from two years ago. There are little shots of vials moving along an assembly line, people staring earnestly into the camera, walking through masked crowds, or cuddling a baby. It's from a group called Gavi, a public-private partnership with the goal of expanding vaccine access. If governments compete for vaccines, most countries could miss out. This is not only bad for countries that cannot secure their own supplies. It's bad for us all, as no one is safe until everyone is safe. In 2020, Gavi was pushing the idea of a special partnership where countries would pool money and risk to try to get COVID vaccines to people around the world. Rich countries would pay more. Poor countries would get the vaccines for free. They called it COVAX. If we
2: start now, we can save hundreds of thousands of
0: lives, not to mention trillions of dollars. It's not about one country versus another. It's about one world protected. The idea sounded great, almost utopian. To Achal Prabala, it also sounded like a total fantasy.
1: Getting vaccines to people in poor countries could mean something more than begging Western pharmaceutical companies for their surplus vaccines or whatever they can provide and then shipping them across, uh, rather than finding ways to make those vaccines in poor countries.
0: Achal is a public health researcher and writer in Bangalore, India.
1: I work on access to medicines and now vaccines. I've worked uh, on this idea for about 20 years in South Africa, starting with the AIDS crisis, sea medicines in Brazil, uh, cancer medicines in India, and looking at ways in which uh, the monopoly pharmaceutical industrial complex can be dismantled.
0: Achal has watched as COVAX began with big promises and lots of fanfare and failed to deliver, again and again. Today on the show, Bachel argues that all of this was predictable and that it's left the world less safe, even the parts of it where most of us are vaccinated. I'm Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about technology, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. The idea of COVAX was born in Davos, Switzerland, in January of 2020. Dr. Seth Berkley, the CEO of GAVI, the Vaccine Alliance, sat down with Dr. Richard Hatchett, the CEO of something called CEPI, the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Innovations. There are a lot of acronyms in this story, we know. The two men were worried about the news out of Wuhan, China, that the new coronavirus was spreading— they thought there was a real chance that the world would soon need a vaccine to fight it. Hatchett is a doctor, but he'd also worked in the U.S. government during the H1N1 outbreak, and he saw countries hoard vaccines. He was afraid something similar would happen this time. So he wrote a paper imagining a mechanism where countries could pool money and invest in vaccine development and then distribute vaccines with everyone's participation. It was the blueprint for COVAX— I've read the paper, and I asked Achal, doesn't Hatchett's idea sound pretty good?
1: It, it does sound really good. And, and this is the problem, I think, fundamentally with organizations like Gavi, which I particularly follow, which is sort of the, the giant in the room in the COVAX system, which is Gavi and CEPI and the World Health Organization.
0: Again, with all the acronyms and organizations. The World Health Organization would also be involved in COVAX. So would UNICEF. And the whole thing would build on the work that Gavi was currently doing.
1: Gavi is the the cornerstone of COVAX. Gavi is now 22 years old, and it was formed with this idea that vaccines were a magic bullet. When it started, the idea was that Gavi would provide subsidized vaccines to poor countries, but it would also work to do... the the slightly harder things to measure, like improving health systems and making sure that public health functioned better, things that don't actually look very good when you report end-of-year results on a PowerPoint slide.
0: I want to get really specific in terms of both kind of how this model was supposed to work and what happened on the ground. I wonder if you could lay out for me how the purchasing model was supposed
1: to work. You're absolutely right in saying that they had noble intentions. So the idea right from the start was that every country in the world would apparently buy vaccines through the COVAX facility, and then the COVAX facility would become an international allocation organization, which would then send those vaccines out so that about 20% of the population of every country could be vaccinated simultaneously, regardless of income. So that you get everyone who's most vulnerable in the entire world, and then you move that up finally to children uh, above two years of age. What that required was uh, for countries like the United States, uh, territories like the European Union, to essentially cede their sovereignty, to, to Gavi in terms of deciding how many vaccines that they could have. Unfortunately, they didn't do that. Your excellencies, good morning, good afternoon, and good evening.
0: COVAX was formally launched in April of 2020 at the World Health Organization.
1: The COVID-19 pandemic is an unprecedented global crisis that has been met with an unprecedented global response.
0: But almost immediately, that response was undermined by countries moving ahead to invest in vaccines and protect their own people.
2: Today, I want to update you on the next stage of this momentous
0: medical initiative. Less than a month after the announcement at the WHO, the U.S. government launched its own project to fund vaccine development, Operation
2: Warp Speed. That means big and it means fast. A massive scientific industrial... And logistical endeavor, unlike anything our country has seen since the Manhattan Project, you really could say that
1: the United States, or the European Union, or Japan, the richest countries in the world, were never going to go to Gavi to get their vaccines. And to be fair to them, uh, these are elected governments who, in this pandemic, uh, had an almost daily responsibility to to communicate to their citizens and taxpayers, what it is that they were doing to get them back into some kind of normalcy. And mm. a, a key aspect of that, of course, is was vaccine development. So, so, it, So it wasn't a surprise in any way. I think what was a surprise was the scale of the funding that came in from the richest countries in the world towards the research and development of these vaccines, as well as pre-orders for these vaccines. So they not only committed to paying for, in Moderna's case, over 100% of its development cost, they also at the same time set up these pre-orders, which were paid for in advance on the basis that this vaccine would work, which meant that for many of these companies like BioNTech and Pfizer and Moderna, their vaccines were spoken for by these rich countries for months and years to come after those vaccines were successful. But I just want to uh, illustrate the perversity of this situation, right? So Gavi and COVAX, these organizations are funded by rich countries. So the United States has given over $2.5 billion to Gavi just for COVID vaccines, right? And at the same time, it spent 10 and more times that money on funding and buying vaccines for itself, which competed with the value of the money that it gave Gavi. So in many ways, the United States' buying of vaccines actually meant that Gavi had uh, was further in the queue to buy its own vaccines.
0: A Gavi spokesperson told us that COVAX was only able to place firm orders once it had cash in the bank from self-financing participants and donors. COVAX was also relying on the world's biggest vaccine maker, the Serum Institute of India, to produce vaccines. They placed a big order and expected results in early 2021. But that fell apart when India experienced a massive wave of COVID infections and banned exports of the vaccine. COVAX was hamstrung.
1: Indian vaccines that were being produced primarily at the Serum Institute were not just for India, but they were for 91 other poor countries. So these vaccines were for 92 poor countries in the world, literally half the world's population. Four billion people needed 8 billion vaccines, and all they had was 1 billion vaccines of AstraZeneca that would be produced over the course of 2021. It was a horrible deal to begin with. There was one vaccine for every eight people uh, who lived in poor countries. This was never going to work out well. And so imagine a room uh, with people who are suffering in a pandemic. There are eight people in the room. You toss one vaccine and you say, well, you fight it out. And that's kind of what happened by about March or April when India decided to ban exports.
0: So COVAX decided to try something else. Donations. Rich countries had purchased more vaccines than they needed. And by May of 2021, COVAX implored them to give those extra shots to poorer countries. The donors, including the U.S., agreed, but were slow to part with their shots. Or they sent them on a confusing schedule.
1: Firstly, um, especially during the Delta wave, when many of these donations were announced, it was a godsend, and I think many countries were relieved to be getting some supply of some vaccines. What it meant as the months went on was that it often created these unpredictable situations. What what poor countries with fairly weak uh, public health infrastructures need is an understanding of... When vaccines will come and in what quantities in order in advance in order to be able to prepare to disperse them.
0: Well, so Nigeria seems like a great example there. Nigeria, as of December, was getting doses of AstraZeneca, of uh, the Moderna vaccine. But as that happened, the health ministry said, wait a minute, you've sent us vaccines that are close to expiring. We've got to turn them around and get them to our population. It seems like a bottleneck that was entirely predictable.
1: One of the things that happens with these announcements of donations is that the number of donations are always much, much greater than what will immediately be shipped. So when the United States says we're donating a billion vaccines, what they really mean is that over the next six months, we'll be donating 200 million vaccines or something like that, right? They get a lot of publicity for doing so and are seen as Um, and are seen as saviors, they're thanked by heads of state, etc. It makes everyone feel good. But the reality is exactly what we were talking about um, that happened in Nigeria, or that has also happened in Kenya and a number of other countries where, uh, especially towards the end of the year, all these rich countries decided that a bunch of different vaccines for various reasons that they didn't use, their surplus capacity would be shipped to Gavi and then uh, to COVAX. COVAX would ship it out. And so suddenly countries were flooded with more vaccines than they could disperse, vaccines that didn't have a very long shelf life that was left and were often left to, to go to waste. I think the food metaphor is useful. You know, it's just not helpful for a hungry family to receive two weeks worth of food in one day, right? And if they don't have a fridge, which just means that it'll last for a day or two and then they will have to go to waste. You need hmm. supply to be predictably spread out across reasonable intervals in order for it to be actually used.
0: So you're saying that Kovacs and Gavi were dumping a bunch of about-to-expire food with no fridge, no cooler, maybe no help in getting those key infrastructure components along the way.
1: Unfortunately, it's also partly to meet Gavi and the COVAX facility's own goals. So when they started, their goal was to ship 2 billion vaccines over last year. In uh, November of last year, they had shipped about 430 million doses, right? So I mean, less than 25% of their original goal was what they had shipped with one month left in the year. And that number in January magically crossed a billion vaccines, still massively short of their goals, right? But somewhat respect, they can, they can say. And in fact, if you go to the COVAX website right now, the Gavi website, you'll see that it says we're proud to say that we've distributed more than a billion vaccines to the world. What's left unsaid, of course, is the fact that so many of those end-of-year donations were useless and countries were unable to use them.
0: This has become a, a particularly difficult issue for African Union countries. What has it left them to do?
1: As soon as it became clear that COVAX could not deliver, and especially after India banned the exports of the AstraZeneca vaccine from serum, it, it was extremely clear that it was just everyone on their own now and it was a doggy dog world. And so the African Union started negotiating commercial contracts for vaccines. Unfortunately, they started so late that they, too, were way behind the queue. And the supplies of vaccines that they've actually received um, has been extremely small in comparison to actual contracts they've signed. So this is the, the most powerful continental entity. It's an intergovernmental entity like the European Union. And they've put real money down to get these vaccines. It's just that... Because of the surging demand for these vaccines and the fact that so many people went ahead of them to place orders for these vaccines, there are none to give the African Union.
0: You know, Strive Masiwa, who is who is leading the African Union's vaccine response, essentially said they went to the manufacturers ready to buy vaccines, but they couldn't because the rich countries already bought everything.
1: That's the thing. This is a funny thing, you know, really early on in the pandemic and the kinds of situations that I've worked on in the last 20 years, as far as monopolies are concerned, have always been to do with price. Uh, you know, when when I worked on uh, access to AIDS medicines in the early arts in South Africa, uh, these medicines were available. There was no short supply of them. It was just that they cost $10,000 a year. But in the pandemic, I think what happened is that even though many governments of poor countries do realize that they have to put money behind these vaccines if they want their country to return to normalcy, they realize that too late, um, they're not in the uh, habit of bidding and and finding ways to solve their own problems with vaccines, which is unfortunately uh, part of the problem with Gavi, meaning that they've outsourced this idea of vaccines to organizations like Gavi. And so when they got into the act, it was so late that even though they had money, vaccines were not available.
0: When we come back, Ochell says Americans who were complaining that the COVID vaccines aren't good enough have a point, just not the one they think. There is no question that making COVID vaccines is a profitable business. Pfizer's latest earnings report showed that its fourth quarter sales more than doubled, mostly because of its COVID vaccine. The company says its COVID vaccine should generate $32 billion in sales this year.
1: There is no pharmaceutical product in history, in the history of the world, that has made that kind of money. (laughs) This is the company that made Viagra, right? So uh, it is really a significant figure. Uh, but when you, th- there is an argument that these kinds of outsized incentives actually speedened up the race to create a vaccine and that we might have got vaccines much later had this model not been there to incentivize companies to, to, to do the research.
0: Right. Why throw all this money behind this process if they weren't going to make any?
1: Exactly, right? There's no question that this is a system that works brilliantly for Pfizer, right? I think the question is, how has it worked for us? And, and and more importantly, Lizzie, I think it's, how has it worked for you? Like, you live in the United States. It's your taxpayer money that went into funding all of Moderna. Moderna was created by you via the US government, right? Now, hmm. what are you getting in return? So fine, you can get a booster when you want, unlike my parents in India, who can only get an AstraZeneca, one of the worst boosters, nine months after they were vaccinated for the second time but the vaccines aren't working like they were supposed to they they worked less well because of the delta variant which came from india because we weren't vaccinated and worked much less well with the omicron variant because that came from sub-saharan, sub-Saharan africa which was also not vaccinated to the same extent right and so the lack of supply of Moderna to me is actually causing a problem to you. And this is a remarkable situation. This is this did not happen with AIDS. This did not happen with hepatitis C, right? And so what have you as a society got out of Modena? I would say not as much as you should have.
0: So this is the argument, I guess, to counter people who might listen to this in the United States and say, I don't see how this affects me. But you're saying when you look at something like... Delta, which kind of raged and incubated in India, or you look at something like Omicron, which probably came from Botswana and South Africa, you're saying we are all connected. And the failure for those populations to be vaccinated is is coming home to me, is coming home— to someone who might pay no attention to what's happening in Botswana?
1: Oh, literally. You know, there's a really uh, interesting dialogue that's going on right now. There was an infamous interview where a journalist in the United States called Barry Weiss went on a Bill Maher show, I think, and said, I'm sick of the pandemic. I think I was told that the vaccines would work. They clearly don't. Mm-hmm. And I was told that everything would be fine after I got vaccinated and the government is lying. There are a whole range of people who are saying exactly the same thing. There's a grain of truth there, Lizzie. Um, you know, they're right, except not in the way that they think. You know, the vaccines are working less well. Why? Because not everyone is being vaccinated at the same time. And we are sending back variants that make your very good vaccines work less well.
0: It's It's very difficult for me to talk to you, someone who is in Bangalore, and not think, oh, you're you're talking about colonialism you're talking about a small group of mostly wealthy white men making decisions that are cutting out people in developing countries and leaving them to fend for themselves and i wonder how you would change that model
1: you know, I would disagree with you and I would say that it's it's a different kind of colonialism. Look, I think in colonialism, one of the funny things that we think of here um, is that lots of people who would not have you know been particularly prominent or uh, made it big in, in London or the United Kingdom could come to India and actually be big in terms of how they could live, right? In this case, I think that there's a weird system in operation where the only winners are Modena and Pfizer. It's not. The United States, uh, uh, it's not the society, it's not the American society or the people who are benefiting from it. I'm certainly not benefiting from it. And so I think that the winners in this are even fewer than in colonialism.
0: Achal says a way to change this model might be to have lower and middle income countries at the table at the beginning of discussions about vaccines, or on a practical level, to waive intellectual property protections around vaccine technology so that more countries can make them it's a subject of continued international debate.
1: So what we have is uh, a set of monopolies on vaccines and other pharmaceuticals, which are state-sanctioned and that are given out by countries uh, through things called patents, which create these 20-year monopolies, uh, legal monopolies, which means no one else can uh, produce the same thing. But vaccines are really interesting, Lizzie, because what they come with is uh, another set of monopolies, which is the actual technology, which is a fancy way of saying the process for making that vaccine, is proprietary. They call it a trade secret. But without that specific uh, process, you can't actually make the same vaccine.
0: That leaves countries that are depending on COVAX waiting for more donations. At this point, only 11% of the African population is fully vaccinated, according to the WHO. 58% of its shots have come from COVAX. Overall, a Gavi spokesperson told us that it had delivered over a billion doses of vaccines to 92 countries, and right now is in a situation where supply is enough to meet demand. But COVAX itself has just asked for another $5.2 billion in international donations to continue its work. I asked Achal if there's any way out of this current situation.
1: For various reasons, personal exhaustion or or optimism or hope or just some, you know, insistent desire to see uh, the good side of things in February 2022 um, are now talking about the end of the pandemic. Right. But who knows? We've had a variant every six months the last year. Why shouldn't we not have that recur in this year? And let me just explain what's going to happen. So in the next few months, in the United States, you will receive an Omicron-specific booster that both uh, Pfizer and Moderna are testing right now you will at some point in the very near future have access to what will be called the next generation, second generation COVID vaccines. It will be an mRNA vaccine. It will be either from Pfizer or Moderna or both. And when that arrives, that will be the only booster worth taking. And I will be back in January 2021 wondering uh, how it is that I'm going to have access to something that is simply not available anywhere in half the world's population.
0: Achal Prabala, thank you so
1: much. Thank you.
0: Achal Prabala is the coordinator of the Access IBSA Project, which campaigns for access to medicines, and a fellow of the Shuttleworth Foundation. All right, that is it for the show today. TBD is produced by Ethan Brooks, and we're edited by Jonathan Fisher. Alicia Montgomery is the executive producer for Slate Podcasts. TBD is part of the larger What Next family, and it's also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. I want to take a minute and recommend that you listen to Thursday's episode of What Next to help understand what exactly is going on with Russian figure skaters at the Olympics. All right, we will be back next week with more episodes. I'm Lizzie O'Leary. Thank you so much for listening.